Well, we welcome you back to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Donald Trump and what goes on around him, and plenty goes on around him. There's no question about that. We try to take an honest look at the current administration. We discuss the things that surround it and the things that are out there in America that are affected by the presidency of Donald Trump and the ways in which that presidency is challenged which seems to be pretty constant. Today joining me is Tom Fitton, president of Judicial Watch. He's a national hero. We'll get his thoughts on the FBI, the investigations into the president, and whether there's real trouble here, and will we ever get to the bottom of it. We'll also hear from our good friend Brian Kennedy, the president of the American Strategy Group. We'll take a look at the 2020 presidential election. and We'll get Brian's thoughts on if a China trade deal will actually get done. But first, I'd like to discuss a couple things. So on on Tuesday, Claude, I went out to um, the bunker, as they call it, Mark Levin's studio. Oh. You know, the the great one, Mark Levin. Yeah. I had an hour with him. He interviewed me. Okay. That must have been fun. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It was interesting. Yeah. He had uh, about 21 people working for him. (laughs) I said, do do all these people work for a lot of people out here? No, just for me. Oh. And just for the one show? Yeah, just for the one show. Okay. So feel proud of yourself. Okay. There are times when I, I do, and there are times when I feel I can do better. <laughs> well, I have, I have one quarter of a cloth. Right. Maybe. Okay. Uh, and I'm very happy with it, but 21 people. I, well, I mean, it's TV, so it's more mm-hmm. complicated. But anyway. But, yeah, good discussion, good interview. Then I get um, downtown. I went, went down to see a doc about my, about my knee. God knows. Lord knows. Knee replacement coming? I don't know. Maybe. 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 But that aside, then I pick up on the news, and all over the news is this college admissions story. Right, right. I just everywhere, and then and then it, it led the news last night. I got up, I got up this morning, looked at all the news shows. I, I watched Fox, and then I turned to CNN, then I went to MSNBC, and then at seven o'clock hour, the networks ABC, NBC, CBS, mm-hmm. they all started with this story. And there's a lot going on in the world, right? You know, there's the jetliners crashing, there's the Manafort Manafort sentencing, and they all start with this college admissions thing. Mm -hmm. Rich people bribing, uh, being bribed, uh, bribing coaches, uh, sending money to Mm -hmm. uh, tutors, so-called tutors, who then change the scores of these rich people's kids so they can get into these colleges. I was on TV this morning on um, America's Newsroom. And I started there. I said, one of the most interesting things about this story is how interested people are in it. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's just the, the Internet's going crazy. Right. Social media is all a buzz. Uh, it's huge. Why is that? I, I asked myself, why is that? Now, I understand, you know, I'm, I'm an anthropologist and this is my tribe. Right. You know, higher education. I know this world. But doesn't everybody know the rich have a great advantage when it comes to virtually everything? <laughs> right. You know, this is not news to me. You know, getting a reservation at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, you're right. You know, yep. Uh, yep. getting special seating. But, I mean, when it comes to their kids, everybody knows rich people can, for example. If they don't like the public schools in the area, they can buy a house in another area where the public schools are good. Mm-hmm. Or they can afford an expensive private school. An expensive private yep. school. They can afford private tutors. Mm-hmm. Tutoring for the SAT or the ACT yes. or just tutoring the kids in math or whatever. Mm-hmm. They can give the kid a great summer trip, which will go on the resume. Mm-hmm. They can pay for bassoon lessons, whatever, right, uh, to enhance the kid's life uh, and to enhance that resume. So why are people so shocked at this? Because Because it's also, as we know, very rich people endow colleges with buildings. Right, all the time. Get named for them. Yep. Uh, I remember my, my boss, president of Boston University, used to get furious because uh, some graduate of Boston University, uh, in most cases it was, it was a Jewish person, would be very, very successful. And then they'd give $2 million to have a building put in their name at Harvard. <laughs> and it ceased to infuriate him. Hey, we educated you. You know, we, we gave you your mm-hmm. leg up. Anyway, they do that. And everybody knows that. But this really got people because this was fraud. This was lying. This was cheating and gaming the system. Americans don't like to see the system being gamed. Mm. Plus, this connects and violates the American dream. I work hard, play by the rules, raise my kids, give them every advantage I can afford to give them. Mm-hmm. I want to send them to the best college. And you know, and I hope that race is a fair race. 
And this story tells us the race isn't fair. Right. Well, and especially when there are so many families who can barely even afford to send their kids to colleges and they're taking out these loans. And we hear about just an exorbitant amount of uh, student loans for a lot of people who can't really even afford to have those loans. And they do that for these schools. And then you've got people who who literally could afford to send their kids to whatever school they could get into and and, and, and could afford to send another kid to school if they, if they wanted to. They have that much money is, is right. the point. Rightly or wrongly. And I believe wrongly. The American people attach a huge importance to what college their kids go to. Mm-hmm. I believe wrongly because I know the data. Mm-hmm. And I know that if you've got a kid with X IQ and X ability, uh, you know, with good educational background and good drive and scores well, um, the difference between that kid going to Bowie State or Harvard really isn't very much in terms of life outcomes. Mm. It's really very interesting. Mm-hmm. Probably get better connections at Harvard, mm-hmm. but um, that kid at Boise State, if he's got those capacities and abilities, is going to succeed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I think too much importance is attached to it. Part of it is a status thing. Um, and parents obsess about this stuff. Uh, I mentioned on TV that in our neighborhood here in a very comfortable uh, suburb of Washington, D.C., we heard when our little boys was, was were little, I remember one person saying to Mrs. Bennett, oh, you've got to get him into X preschool. This is when the child was like four. Wow. Because that preschool is a feeder to X elementary school, and that's a feeder to X prep school, which is a feeder to Yale. <laughs> and that's four. This so put that, put that Y on the kid's forehead right there at the mm-hmm. beginning, you know. Mm-hmm. And parents obsess about this too much. It, they attach too much importance to it. But it's one way of indicating your rise in American society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But rightly or wrongly, they do. Now, you know, I could go a whole piece, and the other audience has heard me before on this, which is, you know, a lot of people shouldn't even go to college. They'll be better off if they don't. Right. They'll save a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll get a good job making a lot of money, and they won't be wasting their time. Is college worth it? It all depends. Depends on the kid. Depends on the college. Depends on a lot of things. I wrote a book on it. People Folks, are welcome to look yeah, just at it. Google search it. Find it on Amazon. Is college worth it? Yeah. You'll be able to. Yeah, yeah. But but there's another bigger thing here, which is you know Bill Bennett's cardinal rule. The thing I most worry about is the American people becoming cynical about their institutions. Mm. You know, you just can't trust anything mm-hmm. or anybody. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump was elected because people felt we couldn't trust the current situation, mm. current government, current institutions, and he said, "I'm going to clean it up." And remember, he raised the question of, is it rigged? Is this election rigged? Mm-hmm. You know, if I lose, was it because it's rigged? Who else raised that objection during the campaign? Bernie Sanders. Right. He, he asked whether the Democrat thing was rigged. He was right. It was. It was. Yeah, saw that. And uh, and so this is, this is a worry. People have that systems rigged. The political system is rigged. Financial system is rigged. Job situation is rigged. College admission situation is rigged. Apparently, a lot of the people, most of the people at the receiving end of the money were coaches. Mm, okay. And uh, crazy, blatant stuff like water polo coach. Yeah, there was a, there was a, uh, like a crew coach, and the kids weren't even on the crew they team. They weren't on a crew team. Mm-hmm. And water polo coach, they, they photoshopped the kid's head onto a water polo player <laughs> in the pool. Uh, now, you could say the university should follow up, the admissions department follow up and see if that kid really made it into the pool or not and was a star player. I don't know. I mean, I, I know something about this because both my kids are athletes who went to college. And university expects but can't require mm-hmm. these okay. kids to, to play. Now, I think under NCAA rules, you may know better than I, if you get a scholarship, if you go and don't play, you lose your scholarship. Right. Yeah. But they can't require you to play. It's, you know, it's, that, that's not right. Can't be done. But uh, these kids who got in uh, un, under these pretexts, I think they should be gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think and, they should be jail time for parents? or Yes. Okay. Well, I don't know about jail time. Okay. I don't know if people go to jail for this kind of thing, but fines. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fines. Punishment. Mm-hmm. Sure. But for the coaches who took, you know, 100000 200000 yeah, mm-hmm. maybe. Wow. I mean, uh, it's very disgusting. I was so sorry to hear about coaches. Mm-hmm. Because as I've said many times, I, you know, I love coaches. I think you they know, play a big role in the development of, of kids. Yeah. And they hear about their corruption. So it, the story continues to rattle around out there. Would love some emails on this. Would love people's opinion about why this is important, why it matters, um, and what should happen. Mm-hmm. So we welcome people. Absolutely. Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail.com. Very good. Thank you very much. 
You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. All right, it's time to welcome Tom Fitton to the show. Tom is the president of Judicial Watch and a first-time guest on the show. I want to get your view of the whole, if you will, at the Justice Department, the FBI story that uh, we've been tracking and you've been leading on in terms of your information at Judicial Watch. But can we start with uh, under questioning, I guess, Lisa Page, under questioning from Congressman Ratliff. What did she say that was important uh, in your view, if, if anything? Well, she confirmed what the text messages that have been so at issue mean. Uh, the left would have you believe they don't mean what they say, which is that uh, Page and Strzok had this anti-Trump, pro-Hillary Clinton bias. And in fact, she said, well, no, they do mean what they say, that uh, – you know, when we meant an insurance policy, we did mean this investigation that we talked about wanting to stop him. We were thinking about wanting to stop him. Uh, when we said he was a menace, we meant it. Uh, and uh, they would have us believe, or Lisa Page would have us believe that, you know, these are just two people venting about their personal like or dislike for Target. And it didn't necessarily mean it impacted the way they conducted their investigation. And I don't think anyone would be persuaded by that. And I tell you, if an FBI agent or a senior official like Peter Strzok and Lisa Page are using their positions to target someone because they don't like their politics, you know, that would be a crime. And that's the approach that needs to be taken here, that Lisa Page provided, in my view, evidence of a crime by senior FBI officials, her colleague Peter Strzok and herself, and it needs to be appropriately investigated. And the idea that this, these two uh, were behind the creation of this uh, anti-Trump investigation uh, shows you from the get-go that it was uh, the whole the whole mess that is the Russia collusion allegation uh, is uh, based on the sand of corruption. I try to follow this closely, but I'm still a little confused. And you're the guy to straighten it out. And I, I think I speak for a lot of the public here. They right were involved in this in this conspiracy in this uh, effort to. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. I mean, Peter Strzok was the number one FBI agent running the Russia investigation. Lisa Page was a top lawyer to uh, the number two at the FBI, so at a key operational role, and both had been assigned to the Mueller operation once it was started as a result of McCabe being angry and uh, Rosenstein being angry at President Trump for firing Comey. And uh, so the question is, why is it they began this investigation of Donald Trump, given the lack of evidence that there was any Russia collusion, other than, I guess, one tip they had from, you know, compromised forces, namely the dossier, that there may be some connections between Trump and Russia? And why on earth would they begin an investigation of a presidential candidate and then continue the investigation of the president, you know, given the lack of evidence? And frankly, to me, it's explained by the fact that they didn't like these texts that, that that have been disclosed show. So these texts uh, are talking about a number of things. Do they follow the in, uh, investigation or part of the investigation, a result of which led Strzok to write at some point, we don't have anything? Was that before they decided to do the insurance policy or to, you know, to make the case against him? Yeah, at one point they said there's no there there. Of course, that was after, uh, that, uh, if I recall, there was a, uh, that those texts were in 2000. 17. Uh, so uh, this is after almost a year of investigating. You know, but, you know, taking a step back even further, you know, as soon as these struck texts were released and made public at least four months after they were removed from the special counsel investigation, you know, the whole operation should have been frozen. Uh, you know, talk about prosecutorial misconduct. I, I, for the life of me, you know, I do understand, but I don't understand as a citizen why it is this whole thing wasn't frozen in place. Given given the misconduct of the investigators involved on it, I, I, involved in it, I just uh, you know I know we have this deep state problem, but you know, we we've our our senior officials at the DOJ and the FBI. Uh, seem to me so enamored of their own institutions, they just refuse to hold them to account. And it's a real, it's a real, it's a real crisis in the way our government's being run. My question's simpler. They are investigating Donald Trump in 2016. Is that correct? Yes, the investigation okay. we think began in 2016. Yes. Okay, and then you just referred to a conclusion in 2017 where they said there's nothing there. When was their discussion of the quote insurance policy? And we got to get get on this guy anyway. 
Was that before the conclusion? That was the election. That was just before the election bill. That okay. was, uh, you know, a lot of these key texts about not liking Trump were just before the election, uh, and uh, certainly as they were also supposedly investigating Hillary Clinton. So you have two investigations compromised at the same time by this bias. All right, but uh, I guess what I'm asking is when they're looking for the insurance policy and looking to do him in, they had not yet concluded there was nothing there. Is that right? You know, uh, it's interesting because Lisa Page kind of admits they really had nothing. Um, At that point. Launching their investigation and they say, well, you know, we only usually rely on a tip to get an investigation launched anyway. We don't necessarily need anything to launch an investigation of substance. Okay. So it's not like they had. <laughs> yeah. It was the investigation that was the insurance policy, not that they had anything substantial to be concerned about with respect to. Uh, then-candidate Trump. So the intention precedes the conclusion of the investigation. We're going to get a- get after this guy. Let's see if we can make a case. The process is the punishment. Okay. What's the implication here? Bring McCabe into the picture. Where does McCabe come into this picture? Well, McCabe was in. McCabe uh, was the, uh, as we point out, the number two official of the, the FBI. Uh, after Comey was fired, he became acting FBI director, and uh, he was controversial because of his involvement in the Clinton email investigation. Uh, despite his wife having uh, received, um, I think, nearly three quarters of a million dollars from the Clinton ally Terry McAuliffe in Virginia for a local race in Virginia. So right. that's a lot of money for a local race. Uh, you know, he says at the time he was not involved in the Clinton email investigation, but certainly a few months later he was. So <laughs> yeah, I think people would fairly question why, why it is he was involved. And sure enough, once it became public, it turns out he did recuse himself. Of course, they didn't tell anyone they re- he recused himself. That was uncovered by Judicial Watch. So uh, it turns out that Comey and he had a discussion and he ended up recusing himself just a few, only a few weeks before the election and certainly after they had concluded that his, Hillary Clinton was never going to be prosecuted. So it kind of shows you that if he didn't recuse, if he, you know, he ended up recusing himself four weeks out of the, four weeks before the election. Well, why didn't he recuse himself earlier and just to call into question the whole investigation itself. And uh, uh, as I say, you've got Struck, Page, you have their conflicts. Of course, then you have their inter- their their adulterous relationship, which raised questions about how they were working together at the FBI anyway and, and how it is things were happening at the FBI. And then secondly, you had Andrew McCabe, who had these conflicts. And then uh, in 2017, had discussions with Rod Rosenstein by his own admission where they were talking about evoking the 25th Amendment in, I think, an outrageously improper, illicit way uh, to try to overthrow the president and wearing a wire on the president. And out of those discussions flowed the appointment of Mueller, too. So uh, this is uh, uh, McCabe's a central character here. And now he's under criminal investigation for lying about his leaks to the media. But is he... uh central character in the struck and page correspondence of the investigation of Trump. Uh, he is. Uh, for instance, the discussion about the insurance policy flowed out of a meeting that page Andrew McCabe and okay. struck had. Okay. Uh, and uh, that was confirmed in Lisa Page's testimony. When, when was that discussion, that uh, insurance policy discussion? I think that was around in uh, August or September, but just a few months, you know, the you know, late to early, uh, you know, late summer of uh, 2016. So just before the election got into full swing. And just to clarify, the insurance policy you said just a couple of minutes ago, the insurance policy was to launch the investigation. The insurance policy was the investigation because they believed they would find something. The investigation had been launched already, right. Okay. And they were hopeful that they would find something or did they feel they could make something up or am I putting too much into their minds? Well, you know, they were concerned. You know, Page's testimony on this is difficult to read because it's incomprehensible. Yeah, okay. <laughs> She's trying to defend the indefensible. And the suggestion was they didn't think President Trump was going to be elected, but if he was, they had this insurance policy. Okay. Uh, you know, I don't think there's any... There's no way to um, uh, interpret that discussion as anything but inappropriate. Yeah. That's a charitable way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Something else I heard this morning, um, and this involved the Hillary Clinton business, was that the FBI uh, uh, was overruled by the Justice Department in terms of the inquiry in regard to um, Hillary. Um, Do I have that right? 
You know, I think that slightly overstates it. I don't think Comey wanted to prosecute Hillary Clinton. I don't think Barack Obama wanted to prosecute Hillary Clinton. And certainly the DOJ didn't want to prosecute Hillary Clinton. Uh, certainly James Comey was on board with whatever DOJ um, had decided in terms of uh, reinterpreting and throwing out the law uh, that required that said that gross negligence was enough for a prosecution. You know, the argument was whether or not she intended to violate the rules about the mishandling yeah. classified information or whether it was just a result of gross negligence. Either one could have resulted in a prosecution, but the government took the position and the Justice Department took the position. Uh, we're, we're told, I think it's all just excuse making, uh, that gross negligence was unconstitutionally vague. And yeah. But the general counsel of the FBI thought they had a case to make. Um, certainly our documents suggest that she intentionally violated the rules. And of course, the investigation, I think, needs to be clear. You know, you should be clear that the investigation was narrow. So they were only focused on classification issues or the mishandling classified information. What about taking government documents that you didn't have a right to take? Yeah. What about the destruction of 30,000 emails? What about the perjury that took place throughout the investigation that they acknowledged took place? Um, and, let, me you know, the to, let me ask you to pause on the, on the one point you just said. General counsel at the FBI thought they had a case against Hillary, right? Yes. Okay, but you say Comey didn't want to make the case, uh, and then Justice didn't want to make the case. The, the significance of the last thing I mentioned, at least as, as I was listening to Fox News this morning, was that it, this says that the you know the the whitewash of the Hillary situation was not a whitewash just at the FBI, but a whitewash by the Justice Department, thus the Obama administration. That's right. You know the top officials at the DOJ obviously were ultimately responsible here, and it helps explain that uh, that terrible press conference that Comey had, which I thought was outrageous too. Yeah, uh, where he attacked Hillary Clinton. You know that was that was a political FBI director who knew that he was never going to be able to get a prosecution, but wanted to pretend that they had done a real investigation. And so he wanted to have his cake and eat it, too, by attacking Hillary Clinton uh, while uh, pretending the rule yeah. of law prevailed. That was, uh, But when you understand that the DOJ never really wanted to do anything to begin with, he knew it was all a crock and it was for show, which shows you why the press conference was so abusive. I mean, I, I hate, I, you know, I'm rarely in a position of defending Hillary Clinton, but she was right to complain about yeah. uh, the FBI director coming out and attacking her like that. You know, either there was an indictment or not. The idea that he was going to put all this crap on the record is just uh, really was an abuse of power. But but how significant is it that, that the Justice Department didn't want to do this? I mean, I, I, does this mean Loretta Lynch didn't want to do it? Does it mean Barack Obama or Joe Biden didn't want to do it? Well, you know, those are questions you have for Loretta Lynch and Sally Yates, who is the number two at the okay. Justice Department and, and the senior officials. I mean, you know, Comey has already testified largely to that effect, and I think his book highlighted that, that the Justice Department was didn't want to do this. And um, but on the at the end of the day, he was in agreement with them as well. So and, and bending over backwards to protect Hillary Clinton while using pretexts. At the same time, working with Clinton campaign people to target President Trump or then-candidate Trump is just all you need to know about how the Justice Department was operating then. All right. If we ever get to the bottom of all this, you said, let's ask, you know, Loretta Lynch and Sally Yates, we will do so, no doubt, with the help of you and Judicial Watch, no doubt about it. Will we ever get to the bottom of it? Well, you know, I think we'll get more details about the the allegations. I think we've been generally right about the analysis here. And obviously, the more information that comes out, the writer we are in terms of the information showing and verifying our concerns. You know, I think the challenge is why isn't this Justice Department done anything to right the wrongs? You know, why hasn't there been investigations in a serious way of what went on? Um, has the DOJ ratified this decision that Hillary Clinton uh, could set up a separate email system where she was um, over which she was warned about the mishandling classified information, uh, and that they ratified the position that gross negligence is no longer a good enough standard that you can leave classified information on the internet equivalent of a public park bench and yeah. you, you won't be prosecuted. Is that the position of the Justice Department? And I and and one of the, I think one of the current outrages is that this Justice Department. 
under President Trump seems to have ratified and condoned what went on during the prior politicized Justice Department. Which okay. Maybe things really haven't changed that much, despite the change of personnel. All right. Who do we you know, look to? I think to? Bill Barr's a, patri- a patriot, but is he going to flip over tables? I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say, who do we look to? Bill Barr? What about Horowitz, the inspector general? Is he coming out with another report? You know, he may have a report on the FISA issues and the abuses related to the FISA. Uh, but, right, but not about you know, this. He looked at the Clinton email issue, and he said if the Justice Department had a legal reason for the decisions they made, he wasn't going to second-guess them, uh, which shows you that um, he dropped the ball. All right, so nothing's changed since Obama at Justice in terms of flipping over the tables or turning over the rocks. Um, but we hope that Bill Barr will do that? Yes, we can hope. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, I mean, I, yeah, but, but we don't know. But but as far as we know, there's that doesn't seem to be any intention at the moment to do that. No, no. And, you know, and I really think, you know, Mueller is, is that special counsel operation is so distorting the operations of the Justice Department. A, it's probably the biggest thing they have going on there. And you have all these other decisions related to the way the Clinton investigation was handled, uh, you know, the underpinnings of the Mueller operation and maybe the way it operated, you know, after after it was set up, uh, that are an issue that they're refusing to confront because no one wants to get in the way of the Mueller special counsel operation. You know, nothing's happening. And, uh, you know, and I'm convinced unless the Mueller operation ends or is shut down, uh, we're not going to see any, any, any accountability beyond what Judicial Watch is able to uncover. Once it ends, and we hear every day it's going to end, I don't, you know, I'm not buying that. I don't believe it's going to end anytime soon. Yeah, I don't, I don't either. Uh, once it ends, if it ends with a whimper, would would we see, you don't know, but I mean, might we have more grounds to believe Justice Department might then try to clean up? clean up the place. I don't know. I, I think Pres- I think Attorney General Barr will probably try to clip uh, uh, the special counsel's wings a little bit in terms of anything they might want to do that an adult might say you can't do because we're, we, you know, we've had enough of the abuse. But uh, as I say, the fundamentals aren't going to change that much. And I, and I, you know, I think, for instance, any report that's written, I mean, the idea that the Justice Department is writing a report on the president's acts as president is just a, an abomination, constitutionally speaking. You know, they, 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 they're not in a position to judge the president's decisions to fire people or exercise his executive authority. They're not, an, they're not a fourth branch of government. And, you know, these fundamental constitutional issues to me have been, a, you know, because it's about getting President Trump, the rules don't matter. What about President Trump? A lot of talk about uh you know, he could order the release of all these documents related to FISA and other things. He could, correct? And why doesn't he, do you suspect? I'm not sure why he doesn't. I, I, he wanted to and then uh, and authorized the release, for instance, of some records about the FISA, additional FISA records and other documents that might shed light about the underlying corruption at DOJ and FBI. And then he said, well, I'll defer to the IG. And that was after the deep staters came in and said the sky would fall if he declassified information. And I'm sure he was suggest it was suggested that the Mueller operation would be interfered with. And so um, he, he kicked the ball. He kicked the ball down the field a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I just I've been imploring him, you know, publicly to yes. get this, this material out there. And, you know, we just sued the other day for the records about this effort to roll back his decision. Okay. So we, we just, we're not going to go away. We're, we're not going to go away. We're going to keep on pressing. We're glad you're not going to go away. I'm going to let you go away after one last question. Is this, is this one of the worst things in American history? I mean, uh, 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 the media, a lot of people, people hate Trump saying, look over here, look over here, look at Trump, look at Trump, look at the bad guy, Trump. Meanwhile, over here, a real catastrophe is taking place, an intentional catastrophe. Um, in, 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 in terms of the events we're talking about, an attempt to take him down by the world's leading law enforcement organization, uh, lying. Um, do I have this right? I mean, it just is the world upside down on when it comes to all this? Yeah, I, I can't think of a more um, abusive use of the tools of government to target a president in history. Yeah. I, mean, I guess you could go back to the Johnson administration, the first Johnson administration, where there was this, a fight over the appointment power the president had that resulted in an impeachment yeah. effort. 
Andrew Johnson. Uh, yeah. Back then, you didn't have the surveillance powers that were abused against President Trump, and uh, and nor did you have this internal coup activity, this seditious activity that I described that the DOJ and the FBI. I, I, you know, and I, but I try to be. You know, I, I think we should try to put it in historical context, and I, I just can't think of anything comparable in you know certainly in the in the last century. Uh, I, I can't nothing, either. Nothing like it ever. I can't either. I can't either. Tom, thank you very much. Keep up your great work. We admire you. We applaud you from afar. We don't know if you can hear us, but we're out there. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Brian Kennedy now joins us. He's the president of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Uh, Brian, let's talk things over. There's a lot going on. As we're talking, they're about to sentence Paul Manafort. I'll, uh, I'll break in when I when I see that result, and we can talk about that. One thing this judge has made clear, and she's pretty tough, um, tough judge, that says nothing to do with Russia, she points out, nothing to do with Russian collusion. So um, that that's an interesting observation, eh? No, absolutely. The, uh, the, the more you read about this, the more you think that we have to be investigating why any of this went on to begin with. Sure, Manafort did things that, that ought not to be done, but we're talking about the government here. And the uh, the left has been using Manafort as somehow a sign of the illegitimacy of the Trump presidency. And this has nothing to do with the Trump presidency. It just has everything to do with Manafort. Yeah. And the fact that the media is seizing on this seems a bit diluted. Yeah. The other thing that I, I bring up all the time, and I think this is important just to add a little bit to what you just said, is... You know, federal prosecutors knew these facts a long time ago, hadn't taken any case to court, hadn't taken up Paul Manafort's case, was only uh, when he was linked to Donald Trump as campaign chairman that they decided to go after him. So, you know, the real linkage here is in the mind of these uh, guys who are making the special investigation, which is uh, maybe we can get Trump this way, because that was the object of the game and still is the object of the game, right? Yeah, no, I think that, that that is right. I mean, and the same is true of uh, Roger Stone. Between what they're going to do here with the sentencing of Manafort and the way they raided Roger Stone's home, yeah, it's not about it's not about their individual action. It's about Donald Trump and their desire to intimidate anybody who would stand with Trump in this presidency. Mm-hmm. And that's the real that, that's the real shameful part of all this. The, the way the way they came on to Stone's home by air and land and sea, yeah. you know, in yeah. five o'clock in the morning, they weren't afraid of, you know, a senior citizen doing something <laughs> against them. Yeah. <laughs> they wanted to send a message to Washington. And again, that's what this Manafort deal is about. They want to send a message to anybody in Washington that if you stand with Donald Trump, you're the target. And that's the really despicable part of all this. You know, this links uh, to the conversation we just concluded, Brian, with Tom Fitton. You know who Tom Fitton is. Judicial Watch. I think he's a national hero, really, for what they uncover. But he said he could not recall in American history a worse transgression by a government agency or department, especially one dedicated to law enforcement, than what happened at the FBI in regard to investigating Donald Trump. Uh, I think he also has in mind the waving of of the uh, of the white flag, you know, the white uh, flag for, for for Hillary Clinton. But he said, I, I, I just he said, I think it's one of the worst transgressions in American history, institutional transgressions and. Uh, I, he said that in response to my question, which was, it was this, is this the greatest example of look over here, meanwhile over there, the real catastrophe is going on. Look over here is what the media and others were saying, which is, you know, look at Trump, look at Trump, look at Trump. Meanwhile, this unbelievable corruption in the FBI was going on and relatively little attention to that still compared to the attention paid to Donald Trump. Well, I think that's a very important observation, and that'll be up to Bill Barr to get that right, up to Senate Judiciary to investigate this, too. But I think all of this points to the fact that given the size of the administrative state, the bureaucracy, the deep state in America today, it all points to the fact that Donald Trump, when he came to office, needed to have people who he could surround himself with who would defend his government rather than the institutions. Because the thing we've learned, I think, is that the institutions are corrupt. 
And so that if you're going to control those institutions, you have to have complete control of them. That means the president and his cabinet and his attorney general have to be in the position to where they will organize this government in such a way that he is able to execute the laws as he sees fit. And if the people don't like it, they can they can vote him out of office if they like, or if he does something wrong, they can impeach him. But we've had two years of a Trump presidency where he's had very little control of the executive branch yeah. and those bureaucracies that are running Washington. And the one that they fear the most, the Justice Department, turned on him. And Jeff Sessions was incapable of controlling it. And, and this will this will puzzle me forever. Because I don't know if you remember, I know you listened to our show, Morning in America. Jeff Sessions was a frequent guest. There was no stronger senator, you know, on, on, the, on the offenses of the Obama administration, speaking up on immigration. The first senator to come out and support Donald Trump. And then I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened to him. Yeah, these are hard, these are hard jobs. And I still believe that there are a fair number of people who simply do not understand the power of the federal government to do things. And I think Trump himself was a bit surprised, by the way, that there wouldn't be more Republicans who would rally to him to help reform the federal government. Yeah. And what and what we have found is Jeff Sessions didn't understand it, but there were a whole bunch of Republicans who didn't want much to change it. I remember uh, complaining to someone um can't remember who it was, but someone I, I respect. I just remember because I, I sort of went to them with complaints, seeking advice. This was after I be, was named uh, Secretary of Education under Ronald Reagan. And I said, after a few months, I said, I have spent the last three months not doing anything in the way of policy or, you know, changing, you know, what, what we're doing. I've just spent the last three months firing people and hiring my own team in here. And this person said, um, you couldn't have used your time better. You couldn't have used your time better. Uh, about six months later, there was a story in the Washington Post that referred to my department or the American People's Department of Education, where I was secretary, as Fort Reagan. And I was actually very proud that, that was the case because we had a ton of Reagan people. Well, we won the election. And so I think this this comment was correct. I, I I later realized the significance of that as, you know, trouble erupted and we tried to implement policy. I had the right people on the ground. And if you don't have the right people on the ground, you, I, I used to tell the story the first month. I said I, I felt like a admiral on a ship, you know, and I uh, walk around with all my medals and my hat and everybody salutes me and I go down and I say, go left, go right, go right. And, and I go down to the engine room and, you know, the, the the steering ropes aren't tied to anything. Everybody's saluting you and saying, hello, Mr. Secretary. But <laughs> the, the ship keeps moving to the left. Was it heartfelt to find people, though, to work for, work in your education department? No. No, you know, Reagan was so popular. There were so many people, uh, you know, sometimes the resumes didn't match. But no, but I'll tell you what, and when I mean no, we had to search for some positions because they were highly, you know, highly specific in terms of skills required. But what was different then and easier was it was so much easier to get people confirmed than um, than it is now. The toughest confirmation hearing uh, uh, at the Department of Education was mine, uh, not the undersecretaries or the assistant secretaries. So, you know, right now, the Schumer Democrats, you know, they're just they're just going to block everything they possibly can. And that's that's a real that's a real sea change. It's 40 years, 30 years. Right, but that's just, but that's just politics, right? Sure, it's politics. And they're, and, and they're playing it much more seriously in, in a much more partisan way. But don't you think that that the Republicans aren't doing a good enough job in horse trading on this stuff? In the old days, you wanted something, I wanted something, we, we, you know, I'll give you this, you give me that. I mean, that's what politics is very often in Washington. It seems to me McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate simply are not going to the mat on things that really matter. They seem to be trying to wait out Trump as well here and not doing the kind of things that need to get done. And I think they're making a gross 
uh, political error. If they think that the country can survive, you know, the Democrats stonewalling and then the election of some Democratic president when people perceive that Trump has failed. I don't know. I, uh, I don't know. You may be right, but, but I'll, I'll tell you what I know is the pliability or bendability or even the ability to compromise with this Democratic bunch is much harder than it was in 1985. And you, there was yeah, there was a sense of a spirit of cooperation and compromise that there is not now. It, right now, I mean, you and I have talked about this in very general terms. Right now, in Washington, if Trump's for it, they're against it. Unanimously, the Democrats, and and sometimes, as you know, a few Republicans. Right. Well, this is this is um, this goes back to what what you and I have been talking about for several years now, which is the disintegration of the country, and that the, the our politics and our people are so divided that we can't understand anymore what the common good is. Yeah. And yeah. so to hell with to hell with the common good. I'm going to look out for what's good for me politically. Yeah. If I'm Chuck Schumer and the Democrats and anything that stands in the way, forget it. Now, that in a way, I understand that. But where are the Republicans challenging it? And I just don't see an adequate defense of the president by the by the Republicans. And that's that's partly why he's, you know, being whip, you know, whiplashed back and forth. Quarterbacks getting sacked so often because the linemen aren't standing up for him enough. Better said. I don't know. I was just thinking about Odell Beckham this morning. You know. <laughs> Uh, is it time for spring football yet? Yeah, almost. Uh, well, there is the AAF, the American Alliance for Football. I don't know if you've seen any of those games. I can't bear it. <laughs> okay. 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 By the way, I hope it takes off, though. Football all year round. I'm for it. Let's talk about something else. Let's go to another area of your expertise. Are we going to have a China deal, do you think? You know, I, I, I don't know, and I somehow don't think so. Uh, or at least not the China deal that had been talked about, something comprehensive and something you know, that would fix all, all, the, all the problems with our relationship with China, from the theft of intellectual property to forced technology transfers to the kind of mercantilist policies the uh, Chinese pursue. I don't think it's going to be that, in part because the Chinese simply can't. Their whole economy is designed toward a kind of mercantilism where they're subsidizing this and that, and there's a lack of transparency. And so the president's been frustrated by that. I think his negotiating team has been frustrated by that. And even though Wall Street may want a deal, and the markets go up when there's talk of a deal and they go down when there's talk of no deal, I think the president is playing a long game here, much like the Chinese, and trying to find something that would be good for the American people and something that would try to rebalance our trade relationship and incentivize American industries to to invest in America again, you know, with the hopes that they'd have a fair shot at competing in China. And so far, I, I just don't see, at least in the news reports and people I talk to, that that's exactly where we're heading. There's still time. And It'll be interesting to see how it comes out. You know, uh, one built-in disadvantage of a free country with free elections is the long-term place to the advantage of the other side. I mean, she, I know, is theoretically elected, but not really. Um, he can be there forever, right? And Donald Trump, we'll, we'll talk about 2020 in a minute, but, you know, presidents of the United States can't count on a long run. They certainly can't count on longer than eight years and very often can't, can't count on longer than four. No, that's right. The, uh, the disadvantage of a free country as well is that the other side is often playing in our politics in a very serious way. And we, everyone talks about Russian collusion. If, if anybody wants to look at Chinese meddling in American politics on a daily or hourly basis, they just need to open their eyes. The Chinese are everywhere in our politics, and they know that they can influence the American business community and the American political establishment more broadly, and they can agitate against President Trump and do. And so in a free society like ours, it is very difficult to get the kind of reforms that the president is seeking, simply in part because very few things are, are on his side, both timing and the ability the ability to, to get a government to do the right thing. I mean, my God, just on the China, I was talking to Michael Pillsbury last night, great China expert. Oh, yeah. 
someone the, pre- the president turns to all the time. And he and I were talking just on how few Trump people are actually in the positions of power in this government, such that even though the president's pushing hard on this trade deal, so many of so many of the people within the apparatus were part of the Obama administration. Yeah. Or the Bush administration is part of the permanent state. And so, again, everybody is agitating toward the status quo because the status quo is where they've been living all these years, of course. And Donald Trump really is trying to remake the country in fundamental ways. And that's a big task, whether whether it's getting control of the education bureaucracy or China policy or anything else. And, you know, God bless Trump for President Trump for doing all he's doing in the face of so much opposition. Well, we know that he also has a tendency, like a lot of good and responsible people do, to say, oh, that's a good idea. I'll implement it myself. When a president has to be able to say, let me get this done and push a button and have somebody take care of it. I think he becomes increasingly conscious of the fact that you just described, that he doesn't have those people there. So he probably thinks he needs to take up more of it himself, which he can't do. Right, because you only have so many hours in a day. So many hours in a day, right. As you point out, I was reading that Mick Mulvaney was, you know, thinking about leaving. I guess that's true of almost everybody in in the cabinet and the White House. Chief of staff, yeah. You know, I'm sorry, chief of staff, but your lesson about finding taking three months to hire your team that that is something you know which i just i I, it can't be discounted at all yeah the president is if he's going to succeed needs to have these people around him and he would be well advised because he can't do everything and so he needs those people around him who can help him whether it's trying to make china accountable on trade issues or you know there's there's so many other areas, defaulted sovereign debt, their their transgressions in the South China Sea, the buildup of their military, their nuclear arsenal. I mean, China has become the kind of threat the Soviet Union has become. But who beside Donald Trump in this government thinks and talks about it that way? Well, it's really much bigger threat than, this, than the Soviet Union or the, than Russia today, right? Well, yes, uh, a bigger threat because they're a bigger country with more industrial capacity, right. more political influence, right. and and simply with a different kind of ambition. That, that old saying, quantity has a quality all its own. The Chinese take that to heart, and they think their place in the world is as the leader of the world. The Soviet Union may have thought that at some level, but they would know, also know their limitations. The Chinese, on the other hand, engage in a long-term strategy to pull that off. And they know they can integrate themselves into our commercial republic in ways that they can have outlying influence almost all the time. You're a very smart guy. Let's... um I gotta gotta pick your brain. The audience will be curious what you think. Um, I asked you about whether you thought there'd be a deal with the Chinese. You said, kind of doubt it. Hope so. Blame for the long run, maybe one in the long run. Will there be a long run? Uh, will there be a second Trump term? Uh, break that question down any way you want. What, what do you think his odds are? I've, I've been reading some stuff lately that if you average it all out and average out all the polls, he's going up. He's in the mid-40s. Um, and, um, you know, he mistakes he makes, things that don't get done, even, you know, things that were crucial to the campaign. People aren't faulting him for, for example, the wall, the border, because people think he's trying. So it seems to be some encouraging news for him. How does it look to you for him for 2020? Does it look promising, a little promising, but a lot of obstacles, weak, sunny? What do you think? I think he's still in a very strong position, in part because he has such tremendous civic courage to say the right thing and to try to do the right thing. And we live in an age where there's not a lot of statesmen, to say the least, but also just not a lot of people with the guts that Trump has to go say the right thing, whether it's on immigration or trade policy or defense or, you know, you name it. And the mere fact that he's willing to say those things means he can speak to the American people in a very clear and authentic way. I think that's partly why he won the last time. People heard him. They liked his candor, and they liked the fact that he would seemed like he was on their side. 
in ways that very few politicians ever do. So in the in 2020, I expect that he's going to talk just that way again. And if he's if he's not succeeded, like on the wall, I expect he'll explain that to people why he didn't succeed. And I think he'll be rewarded for that candor again. And the Democrats seem to still be out of touch with the American people. Trump's courage and their kookiness should work in his advantage. I want to get to kookiness in a second, uh, but let's talk about, look, he's obviously, I use a phrase used by Ronald Reagan, he's a great communicator and a direct communicator, and people don't have any trouble understanding what he means. The Beatles have that great lyric, indicate precisely what you mean to say. He does. There's no ambiguity in a lot of what he says. Puts it right out there, plain speaking. And the American people like that. But back to the China deal or the North Korea deal or tax cut phase number two or whatever. What kind of accomplishments will matter? What what kind of notches does he have to get in his belt, Brian? Well, the economy is strong. That's a great question. It, it seems to me today the economy is strong. That's what he promised. And that's what he's delivering on. Um, the country understands itself in a different way. Where was China as the existential threat during the Obama years? We had this pivot toward Asia, and yet now we're hearing about a China that seems to have come out of nowhere and presents this existential threat. Now, on your radio show and the podcast, you've been talking about this for a long time with, I think, me and other guests. But just the fact that in the Trump administration, there is moral clarity about the dangers in the world. Maybe maybe that's too it's too esoteric, but that in itself is an achievement to to wake the American people up that there is this threat and that he's dealing with this threat. That that's a that's a very that's a great accomplishment, even if people can't quite appreciate it that way. But if you have a strong economy and an America that understands itself in the world and he's standing up for America's interests and this whole idea of America first seems real to people. That's a that in itself will have been an important accomplishment because it's not like he said it during the campaign and then lived something else or govern a different way when he was president. When he was president, he still was America first. He was serious about the wall, even if Republicans in Congress were not. But the fact that he's been standing up to North Korea, he got us out of the Iran deal. He is talking tough with China submitting a defense budget that is more serious, that he talks about building a space force. If he can array a government that agrees with him, meaning cabinet and, you know, people people in the, you know, third, fourth and fifth tiers below the cabinet secretary who can carry out what he believes, the country is going to be in a very strong position. Now, they may not see that before 2020, but I think he's well on his way to getting there. Brief comment. Who do you think the most likely Democrat nominee will be? Who's most likely to be the Democrat nominee? Well, I, I, I think today Bernie Sanders. Really? And the reason is he has a kind of transparency and uh-huh. clarity. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. that the rest of them don't. Yeah. Uh, Bernie Sanders actually believes what he's saying. All the crazy <laughs> all the craziness that he spouts. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas you look you look at at my senator Kamala Harris. Now she's plenty attractive in so many ways. She doesn't seem like she really believes all this that it's all sort of an act and Bernie on the other hand believes it and there will be a part of the Democratic Party that will simply gravitate to him believing the craziness. Well those will be fiery debates. They won't really be as good as the SNL debates between Alec Baldwin and Larry David. <laughs> But they'll be pretty good. It's very interesting what you say, though, uh, because wouldn't you agree that, you know, if you had to pick two people in 2016 running for president who most got a hold of American discontent, it would be Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. Right. Whatever the solution to Sanders. I was saying this morning, I was talking about this college, you know, uh, admissions uh, scandal that at the at the end of the day. You know, I hate something that makes people cynical about America, about their institutions, and this sense that things are rigged. And then I asked a rhetorical question, you know, to the the interviewers, who talked about the system being rigged in 2016? Two guys, 
Donald Trump said, you know, when they asked about whether he'd win or lose or not, he'd say, well, you know, maybe the system will be rigged. I don't know. We'll see. But it could be rigged. He raised that suspicion. And, of course, Bernie Sanders talked about the Democratic nomination being rigged, and he was right. Well, there you go. I I think that is a great observation on your part. And the system is rigged in so many ways against so many people. Yeah. But isn't that a funny thing, though, isn't it? Yes. You know, Americans have a real passion for fairness. Yes. Maybe maybe more so than any other people in the world, because we we, it's just kind of in our DNA. We like fair play. And when we don't see fair play, we rebel. And when someone speaks to them about fairness and, um, you know, I, I mean, I can see I, we don't have time to get into this, but this whole college scholars uh, admissions thing, I can see both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders talking about this with conviction and authority. You know, Donald Trump saying this, man, this shouldn't be. This isn't right. People shouldn't be buying these things. And Bernie Sanders saying, hey, here we go. Another privilege for the rich. Here's the 1% buying their way into Stanford. And they'll do so with two authentic voices. As opposed to, well, you know, we think that, uh, you know, people should be able to choose the bathroom of their choice based on the gender they choose to be. Who the hell is going to be motivated by that? <laughs> right. Or or, or you, can, you can see someone like Senator Gillibrand saying something about doing a you know, 12-part commission to study this for the next you know, 40 years to figure out what's really going on. Whereas there is a certain clarity with Bernie Sanders on this and certainly with Trump that they think, yeah, there's a problem here. What's really going on? Where's merit? And you don't see that merit. And that's a problem. Okay, well, uh, will Biden run and will Bernie blow him away in the primary? You know, I, I, I expect Biden probably will run. But Biden, you know, it, it's not like Biden, it's, it's not impossible for him to win the nomination. But that, doesn't, that certainly doesn't seem where, where the Democratic Party really is. And he does seem like a crazy uncle. I guess, you know, from my point of view, so does Bernie Sanders. But Joe Biden seems more like that crazy uncle who, you know, he's been around for so long. Do we have to listen to Joe Biden? Well, I, I just don't see him. I just don't see him getting that far in the Democratic I, I, you know, one of the, one of the, I thought revealing things that, you know, I take little things to be revealing. I was telling somebody the other day, they said, what did Trump do that you like the most? I said, first thing that comes to mind is not, you know, the big stuff. First thing that comes to mind is when he said, oh, I told this to Mark Levin. I said, was when he said, I'm not going to the White House Correspondence Center. I'm just not going. You know, and, and Elaine and I have been to six of them. We walked out on three of them because they were so insulting and demeaning to the president. The president stands up there and gets insulted by the press. You know, and they give awards to journalists who are, you know, trying to find every bit of dirt they can on the presidents. Presidents stand there and applaud them. Donald Trump wasn't going wasn't going for that. You know, he 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 just wasn't he just wasn't going for that. You know that that that's just you know that 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 that's just the kind of guy he is. So that was a great true note of Trump. Biden hit a true note of Biden. When he said the other day, you know, take Mike Pence, I don't agree with him, but he's a very decent guy. And he had to back off calling him a decent guy, you know, because he got attacked by LGBTQ. And because his wife teaches art at a Christian academy, you know, they're they're ipso facto intolerant people. And so he said, you know, of course, it's not at all decent. So is he going to try to do a, a, I'm a progressive, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an older male version of uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Is that what he's going to do? And without without mixing metaphors or examples here, it's kind of like a reverse sister soldier moment. Uh huh. Uh huh. With, with Bill Clinton, and he stood up against rap music. Right. <laughs> here, here is Joe Biden now standing up against decency. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Calling a decent guy decent. By the way, it takes real chutzpah to stand up against decency, as if decency now is being, you know. But again, by the way, I think they really do have to stand up against decency at some level. Sure. Because their entire agenda is so contrary to what Americans think of as common decency and morality, whether it's late-term abortions or... You know all the all the yep. gender sensitivities that just go over the top, and people people just at the end of the day wonder about that. But you're right about Trump. Trump really does understand that there's something symbolic here 
to get right, which is why he skips the correspondence dinner. But I, I, I hearken back to he also needs to build a government who agrees with him, even on those points. Yes, he does. Of you course. Saw, you, saw, you, saw Gen, you saw General Kelly was at Duke University and gave a talk at Duke University. I didn't. And well, it was it was interesting. General Kelly is a, a very decent man and served his country ably. But here he is as chief of staff of Donald Trump and also, before that, director of Homeland Security, responsible for building the wall. And he talks at Duke about how he thinks the wall is expensive and unnecessary. Yeah. And he made sure that he didn't get that done or didn't do everything he could, or at least it appears that way, do everything he could to get it done. And as chief of staff, and he says that was you know the worst job of his life, being chief of staff, well, there's a, there's a part of Washington that just doesn't know how to deal with Donald Trump, is trying to thwart him. And this is true not only of the Democrats, but of the people that are most intimate with the president, including his chief of staff. All right. Well, I don't want to end on that note. I want to end on the note that really lifted me this morning, among many other things you said, and that is it's going to be Bernie. I really look forward to that. (laughs) I just think I won't miss any one of those debates. Well, that will be fun, too, won't it? Yeah. And, you know, those two guys are my demographic, man. They'll be speaking to me. We shall see, but I'll tell you something, Brian. We live in interesting times, and uh, I am so proud to be a member of the American Strategy Group with your support and sponsorship, and what a time to be alive talking about this stuff. It's amazing. And uh, Well, thank you, Bill, and thanks for being part of what we do, and thanks for all you do to defend the principles of the country because these are interesting times, but these are... Challenging. That, that, that's, that, that's underselling it. These are critical times. Critical, I know. And if we and, know. and if we don't get this right, uh, we will regret it, yeah. and our children will, will regret it. And if we can get the rest of what used to be the conservative movement to fight too, we can still turn this country around, and we have to. Yeah. And I believe we can. Our time for this episode has come to an end. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett and like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. The address is BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. 